saint, a member of the congregation, this is often the psalm that I will read with God's people. And it is fitting, given our study this afternoon of Lord's Day 16, almost all of Lord's Day 16, not quite, which deals with the death, burial, or the death and the burial, rather, of Jesus Christ. And there is something of that also in this. The fulfillment of Psalm 16 is, of course, Jesus. You hear that in the fulfillment uh, of the New Testament's use of this psalm. Listen to what it says. Psalm 16, beginning at verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's for the reading of God's holy word. Then to Lord's Day 16 itself. Lord's Day 16, page 878, 879 in our Trinities, and 217, 218 in our liturgical forms and prayers book. It's only page 217 we're actually going to need because uh, I've written another sermon a separate sermon for question and answer 44. Um, Often we talk about this particular aspect of the creed. He descended into hell, and that seems to present a challenge to us, uh, which is good, which is good to ask questions and try to understand things. And in an effort to do that, I'm going to just devote a sermon to question and answer 44. So we'll omit that one in our recitation of the answers today. We'll just recite question and answers 40, 41, 42, and 43. So then, why did Christ have to suffer? Because God's justice and truth require it. Nothing else could pay for our sins except the death of the Son of God. Why was he buried? His burial testifies that he really died. And since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? Our death is not a payment for our sins, but only a dying to sins and an entering into eternal life. And what further benefit do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? By his power, our old man is crucified, put to death, and buried with him, so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer rule us, but that instead we may offer ourselves as a sacrifice of thanksgiving to him. This the church does believe. Brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ, We have before us a rather difficult and dark topic, that of 
our own mortality and death, that of what we are all at some point called to deal with. We have had that now a couple of weeks in a row. Uh, We've had in our bulletin uh, prayers for those that have lost loved ones. And in those moments, we find ourselves in this in-between or this difficult situation where we're not quite sure which way we're supposed to go. In that death is dark. Death is Uh, Not something that any of us looks forward to. It's not anything that we rejoice in or or that we find ourselves uh, treating lightly or casually. It is a grief. It is the last enemy. It is a thief. Uh, There is much about death that is uh, very much unappealing and that we want to turn our faces away from. But as Christians, we also talk about the joy, the deliverance, the celebration, the entrance into glory, the translation and transformation of the one who has died. We rejoice to know that this saint is now in God's presence through the gateway of death in order to praise God for all eternity. So we do have reason to rejoice even as we have reason to mourn. And, and the process of mourning can often be sort of a moving between these things. Moments of great peace and celebration, moments of great confidence and comfort, as well as moments of great sorrow and grief and pain. And I think that the reason we have that, that, that bouncing between these extremes is precisely because of Jesus Christ. Or to put it another way, many people in our world aren't able to mourn in that way. They can't come and see the darkness and grieve it, even as they have little reason to celebrate the future and the hope of God in Jesus Christ. And so for many in our world, death is a topic either they don't want to talk about at all, they don't want to deal with it at all, they don't really want to think about Or it's something they treat very casually, they treat very complacently, they try and almost embrace it and say, well, you know, death is this lovely thing where you become part of the great cycle of renewal and and on and on they go. I think as Christians we have a unique privilege and opportunity to witness to our world in our moments of grieving death precisely because we can both say, this is wrong, this is terrible and is not the way it should be and can also rejoice because of what God has done. But to see how we do that, we need to put away the world's empty phrases, the world's empty attempts to try and solve the problem of grief, and we have to look it dead in the eyes. We have to see the awfulness for what it is and the wonder of it, and we do both when we look at Jesus Christ's death and burial, which is before us in Lord's Day 16 in the first four question and answers of Lord's Day 16, the first two of which confirm Jesus' death. You'll note that, that in question answer 40, we read that Jesus died because the death of the Son of God was the only thing that could pay for our sins. And then his burial confirms, testifies that he really did die. Here we are again brought to our theology 101, you might say, to our biblical basics our understanding of the fundamental truths of God's Word. Sin needs to be paid for. Genesis 2 verse 17 reminds us that the price of sin, the wages of sin is death. Indeed, all of those Old Testament sacrifices that the Lord ordained where the priests were to bring those animals to the Lord on the sacrificial altar 
they remind us that someone, something has to die in order for us to be saved. Indeed, the writer in the, to the letter of the Hebrews in chapter 2 at verse 9 speaks in this way as well. The writer to the Hebrews in chapter 2 verse 9 says, says this, he says, but we see him who, is, who, who for a little while was made a little lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Death, the death of the Savior, is an absolute necessity in light of the judgment of God against sin. The Catechism's already told us this, of course. We don't need to dwell too long here. Lord's Days 5 and 6 have brought this into our minds properly and explained from the Word of God how this is true. And here we are reminded that's exactly why Jesus died. Why did Jesus die? Why was He buried? Because death was a necessity. And that means, you understand, that those who may argue, and there are many that do, that Jesus' death, the only purpose of Jesus' death was merely a moral lesson. They say Jesus died to teach us how to be good. Or it was an exemplaristic event, a look at what happens when you rebel against God. They are all proved wrong when they come to this teaching of the Word of God and to this teaching of the Catechism. When they come to the cross of Calvary, they meet a Savior who pays the necessary ransom for a people burdened by the weight of sin's curse. And we are to remember that always and forever in our thinking about Jesus, in our understanding of the faith that we profess, and in our love for God. We are to always remember that Jesus' death, Jesus' death was a payment for sin. Because we sometimes forget that. Maybe not with respect to Jesus, but with respect to death generally. We can so quickly imagine death to be merely a biological event. According to so many in our world, death is really to be understood entirely apart from God and only in relation to our physical existence, our fleshly reality. Everyone dies, our world says. Everyone ages. Everyone suffers the effects of the breakdown of the body. And so, what did you expect? What else could there be but death at the end of this pathway? And modern man who has told himself that the spiritual cannot exist and therefore does not exist, therefore imagines that heaven and hell are not a reality, that there's no question about life after death, that really it's just carbon being recycled into this reality, this world. Indeed, evolution, the preferred religion of so many today, tells us that death is actually a good thing, that it's actually a blessed event. Because when we die, we remove inferior genes from the progress of life. We, we sacrifice our existence so that our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren can be better than us. Our death is indeed for the greater good. It's almost redemptive. So death, says our world, is just a part of life. And it's not bad. And yet, if you look at the artwork and the religious side and the, the, the uh, literature side of our society, you discover that death is actually 
an issue that many people wrestle with. And that there is, in fact, this innate sense within all of humanity that on the other side of death is a rather dark experience. Consider the many ways in which the historic understanding of life after death has reflected a darkness and a judgment. Think of the epic of Gilgamesh, where death is considered a house of darkness, where the dead drink dirt and eat stone. Think of the Greeks in their mythology. They had a place of punishment where the, where the worst of the worst suffered terribly. They also had a place of blessing, a place of paradise. They also had a place in between, by the way. A place in between where you forgot your existence on earth. You were like an etch-a-sketch that was shaken and emptied. And so you sort of lived neither in joy nor in pain, just in this empty existence. And why is it that all societies and religions offer some solution to the problem of death? Why are so many religions and philosophies focused on answering this problem? Like Buddhism with its reincarnation and ascendancy to the oneness of everything. Or Plato who told us that our souls are eternal and therefore when we die our eternal souls just go into the realm of ideas. Or think of the Egyptians and their mummification and gifts for the dead as they travel. Historically, even culturally, our society and world tries to pretend that we don't need to deal with the question of death, all the while providing these empty solutions to death's problem. And there is in all of these things an echo of the truth, isn't there? Man's heart knows or senses that there is judgment. There is justice that needs to be satisfied. That's why so many people, if you ask them if they're going to heaven, will say, because I've done more good than bad, I believe I am. The scales need to weigh in favor of the one who dies. The Scripture explains all this human response and thinking when it teaches us that death is not, first of all, a biological experience, but is in fact a spiritual event. When we understand the human experience through the lens of God's Word, so much of it begins to make sense. We begin to understand man's desires, man's ideas, and man's thoughts. Because man echoes the teaching of God's Word in so many ways, knowing that death is the consequence of sin. That's what makes the grave such a stark reminder and a dark truth. We who were created to live life to the fullest And our foolishness, our rebellion against God bringing us to the lowest. The yawning mouth of the grave, the persistent dotting of the landscape with those headstones reminds all of us, no matter where we are or who we are, that we who were made good are sinners under the judgment of God for death. Which is also why the death and burial of Jesus ought to be for us as believers Such a source of great encouragement. Precisely because death is dark, because it is dismal, because it is scary, we ought to rejoice to know that Jesus bore the judgment and He bore it right to the bitter end. He didn't exempt any step along the way. He didn't just hang on the cross bearing the wrath of God in those dark hours. He gave up His Spirit. He allowed His body to be carried to the grave. He entered into that yawning darkness that He might defeat it for all who trust in Him. He turned the grave inside out so that it was no longer a resting place, 
but a very doorway into God's presence for all who believe. That's the comfort that we confess and profess before a watching world. Not that we're worthy. Not that we're able. Not that we're superhuman and not afraid of death. Oh, death is ugly. It is grievous. And it frightens us all. But we rush to the very side of Jesus to find our comfort and confidence in the face of death. Denying its ugliness doesn't help us at all. Pretending like it's all good, we can all just polish up the person who's passed away and bring them into heaven with our eulogies is a waste of time. What we ought to do is rejoice in the fact that Jesus Christ was dead and buried. Seeing the solution to death in Christ is our comfort. It is our strength. But it is also, it is also a call to see that death has changed for the believer. That's what question answer 42 says. Since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? And the answer is our death is not a payment for our sins, but a dying to sins and an entering into eternal life our death is not merely biological it is the consequence of sin it is the judgment of God against sin but you say wait a minute we have been justified we who believe in Jesus Christ we have been washed clean we are no longer in sin we are in grace And if we are in grace, if God the Father looks at us as though we'd never sinned or been sinners, as though we were as perfectly righteous as Jesus was righteous for us, then why do we still have to die? Why do Christians still enter the grave? Why can't we instead just all of a sudden ascend by some beam of light into heaven itself? Let us acknowledge that for the believer the question of death is radically reoriented. It is never about judgment. It is always about deliverance. Just here, some of the lovely passages in God's Word. There are so many that we can turn to. But the ones that really speak to us so often as we think about the problem of death. Think of Job's words in Job 19, verse 25. For I know that my Redeemer lives and that at the last I will stand up, or He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed yet in life, I shall see God. My heart faints within me. Think of the words we just sang from Psalm, or read rather, from Psalm 16. Those words that are so beautifully fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or cause your Holy One to see corruption. I think of those very powerful words of Paul written at the very end of his life. He came to very, he was very close to his death and he was about to die in Philippians 1 written from prison uh, to the church at Philippi. He says this, these famous words, uh, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For the believer, death is obviously very much changed. Very much changed. But the truth is, as much as we'd like to escape all of the pain of cancer and heart disease and 
the vagaries of old age and the flaws in our, our hearts as they start to fail and our kidneys and livers as they start to fail. And we wish we could completely erase all of the darkness of our death. If we could just all of a sudden in a twinkling of an eye be in heaven, no pain along the way, we'd be much better off. We'd be much happier. Yet the truth is we don't always appreciate just how deep sin is seated within us. We forget what Paul says in Romans 7 at verse 24 when he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Or when we think of what the writer Jude writes in verse 23 of his letter, Jude verse 23, he says this, He says, have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy without fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. He says, you know what? Even your clothes is stained by sin because your body of sin wears it. The stench of sin, it it creeps into every part of your existence. That's what Jude says. And that's our experience, isn't it? Surely that's all of our experience. Our struggle with sin is every day. Our struggle with sin is endless to the very day that we die. Whether it's in our words, our actions, or thoughts, whether it's in our attitudes, it's in the things that we do or the things that we don't do, the truth is not a single one of us is close to perfection. Even the holiest among us has a small beginning of what is required of us. And that ought to cause us to grieve. That ought to cause us to mourn. We ought to, to, to stand before the face of God and cry out, Lord, deliver me from this body of death. And indeed, that's how we are to see our death as the final destruction of our wicked rebellion against God. Indeed, we ought to see the decay of the human body in this respect as a good thing. Because this is not a matter of simply accepting the problem of our mortality. Oh no, we need to grieve and we need to mourn before the face of God over the presence of sin in our lives. We ought to stand before God in humility and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. But we can also, like Paul, look forward to death for this very reason. There are many reasons not to look forward to death, of course, painful, separation from loved ones, the unknown, etc. But here's the great reason to look forward to your death. When you pass through that door, you will leave behind your pride and your selfishness and your lust and your greed and your impatience and your cruelty and your brokenness. And surely for the believer... That's something to look forward to. When our heart's desire is to live in fellowship with the Lord, then everything that prevents or interrupts our walk with God is to be for us a grief, a sorrow, a pain. And it ought to be for us then a day to look forward to when we will be freed from these things. You see, we are to confess with Paul that our death is a gain. Our death is a deliverance from all of the misery of our own rebelliousness against God. 
And that ought to change the way that we look at our own death, look at our own aging, look at our own experiences, and the way that we look forward to eternity. This isn't to suggest that we should become careless or inappropriately fearless in this life or in the experience of this life. That is to say, you shouldn't just say, well, fill your boots, we're going to be free of sin when we die. The the grace of God is never a license to sin, never a license to say it doesn't matter anyway, this body's going to be buried into the ground. Use it as you see fit, deal with it as you want, it doesn't matter anyway. You must never be careless with God's good gift. It is to disrespect God if you disrespect the body He's given you and act in a way that suggests we don't know. And that's the way of the world to treat lightly what God has purchased by the blood of His Son at so great a price. Oh no, our bodies also belong to the Lord. Our existence in its entirety has been purchased by Christ. But at the same time, we can recognize as those who know the joys of this life that our true joy and our true fullness, our true life and liberty will never be found in this life. It will always be in the life to come. That doesn't let us be careless, but it does allow us to look forward to the day of Christ's return for the day of our entrance into glory. It means that we can look forward to when the burden of this sin is lifted from our shoulders and we enter into unbroken fellowship with the king and that's what the grave has become for us it's the door it is the doorway into God's presence the death of Jesus and his burial have opened for us a way into such blessedness that we cannot begin to grasp the enormity of where we're headed only that we can know it is full of joy and blessedness And that's why you understand, that's why the church has always been willing to sacrifice, to suffer, and to surrender everything in service to the King who was dead and buried. We're willing to sacrifice today's blessings because we know that we have a brighter tomorrow. That we are trading in this life dust for the diamonds of eternity. Can you imagine offering to someone a handful of diamonds and they say to you, but what about my dust? What about my precious dust? Why cling to the dust when diamonds are ours in abundance? We are willing to suffer because we know that suffering has an end date. That all of our pain in this life, whatever it's from, whether it's emotional, mental, or physical, We know that it has a terminus. It has a conclusion. It will never be eternal or endless. Not for the believer who rests in the Jesus who died and was buried. And we are willing to surrender all in sacrifice to Christ. Martyrdom is still a reality for many believers today. Indeed, 200,000 Christians are martyred each year. And we can do that. We can let go of this life because we have a better tomorrow. Because Jesus has redeemed our lives by His perfect sovereign power. Which means you understand that this life is held very lightly. For the unbeliever, this world is all they can rely on and be confident about. So they can't sacrifice. They can't surrender for the blessing of others. They have to be selfish because they can't let go 
But we can let go. We can let go precisely because we know that we have been given a brighter future. It doesn't make life always easy, to be sure. Some things are just painful and hard. Some problems are temporary and fleeting. We think they're really bad, but they're not. But some things are hard. And whether we're suffering a hard thing, a lifelong thing, or a temporary thing, a few days sort of a thing, the truth is we need to learn to see this life as the dust that it is. And that we need to see that there is this curse that lies on everything, that leaves everything slowly decaying, slowly destroyed, that robs ultimately the joy of life from us. And it's in us too, isn't it? No matter how many times we learn the lesson of sin's painful consequences, we still speak out of turn and act selfishly and find our passion for the Lord fading at times and we find ourselves struggling with sin to the very end of our days. But we rejoice in this, that we have been given a promised tomorrow that far outshines any of our struggles. And so with the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, having cried out who will deliver us from this body of death, we can with the Apostle also say, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We truly live, you understand, without a fear of suffering, without a fear of death, without a fear of judgment in Jesus Christ. Today is brighter and more blessed because we know that a better tomorrow is coming. And though we can grieve the brokenness of this life, though we can genuinely enter into the pain of this life and own it as a consequence of sin against God, yet we can rejoice to know that for all of the pain we're suffering, blessedness is our eternity. And that ought to change then the way that we live each day. Here's question and answer 43. What further benefit do we receive from Christ or from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? It says, by His power, our old man is crucified, put to death and buried with Him so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer rule us, but that instead we may offer ourselves as a sacrifice of thanksgiving to Him. The root of our sinfulness, that natural man, that man we're all born with, we're all born into sin, that natural human being, that person that we are when we are conceived in this life, body and soul, that person is killed when Jesus Christ dies on the cross. Christ died, but so did we. This is repeatedly the message of the Scriptures, certainly in the New Testament, that we who have been in, who are in Christ are dead to sin. We saw that this morning in our assurance of pardon in Romans chapter 6. How will we who died to sin still live in it? Wait a minute, how have we died to sin? Well, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into His death? And we were buried, therefore, uh, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too would be raised to walk in newness of life. Or think of the Apostle Peter's words when he describes for us or he calls us to see ourselves as we truly are in Jesus Christ. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves for the, in the same way of thinking, with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. 
On and on we can go quoting passages that demonstrate that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, those who by faith are united to Him also died on the cross. Meaning that that sinful character, that person, that sinner, old man, that Adam is now in us dead and dying. And that new man of whom Jesus speaks to Nicodemus in John 3, that new man is coming to life. A new man who rejoices to serve God, rejoices to walk in the way of righteousness, who, like Paul says in Romans 7, loves to do good, loves to obey God. Indeed, that's the comfort, isn't it, of the Gospel, is that salvation is not only focused on the guilt of sin, yes, we are freed from its guilt, but also, says the Scriptures, from its power. That is, that Jesus came not only to wash us clean, but also to free us from the chains of sin. Now, our freedom from the chains of sin is not our basis for standing before God. That is, you're not a Christian because you do good. Rather, you do good because you're a Christian. As surely as we are united to Christ by faith, so surely does His Spirit begin the work of transforming our lives from dead sinner to living saint. And in this newness of life, we live radically altered lives in the midst of a fallen and depraved generation. As different, you might say, as those who walk through a cemetery are different than those who live in the cemetery. The dead do not speak, do not rejoice, do not experience life. It is only the living who do. And though we may not utterly be freed from the effects of sin in our lives, when we are born again to a new life, we are born again to a life that says yes to righteousness and no to ungodliness. Again, there is such a lovely honesty to this confession when it says that the evil desires of the flesh no longer rule us, but instead we may offer ourselves as a sacrifice of thanksgiving. It it doesn't say, does it, that we become perfect. It doesn't say we never struggle with sin. It doesn't say that we never fall into temptations or traps or make stupid mistakes again and again and again. Oh no, the previous question and answer has convicted us and convinced us that we are a people so full of sin that only death can ultimately free us from it. But even so, we are not left in our sin so that there's nothing we can do about it. Oh no, listen to what the writer, or what Paul writes rather, to Titus in Titus chapter 2. Familiar words or words that ought to be familiar to us. Titus chapter 2 at the verses 11 to 14. There the apostle writes these words, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We have been trained to say no to ungodliness. Indeed, what does the Apostle Peter say? He says, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his eyes are open to their prayer. But the face of, face of the Lord is against those who do evil. 
But he says, says Peter, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior may be put to shame. The expectation in the Scriptures, isn't it, is that we will be salmon swimming against the current, that we will be boats tacking against the wind, that we will not be like the flotsam and jetsam of this life that just floats on the surface and follows the current, that we won't be like those salmon who after they've spawned die and now in their death float with the stream. No, we ought to fight against sin. We ought to put to death the old nature. We ought to live in the newness of life. Oh yes, the echo of sin does remain. The ruts that we have in our hearts and minds, the routines of sin, they remain. Even if we've never known a day without Jesus Christ, there is built in our old nature, our old selves, that self we're born with, patterns and practices of sin. We know selfishness and what it tastes like before we ever experience it. We know what pride and deceit are all about before we've ever been taught by anyone. We all struggle with the grip of sin. And even when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we continue to find those comfort foods, those familiar patterns as the ones that are right. We we find anger is better than patience. We find Pride is better than humility. We find ourselves looking back with 2020 hindsight thinking, why did I do that? Realizing that it's because there is this natural inclination in all of us to sin. In our old self, we rebel. But Christ's death is the daily reminder That we are not left in our misery. We are not left in sin's grip. And when we falter and fail into those old routines, the right response of the believer is to repent and believe. It is to get out of those ways and into the righteousness of Christ. It's not to say righteousness isn't important It's to say, I want to serve my King in the power of His love as perfectly as I can. I may only make it .0002% of the way, but I will strive for perfection. For I have been delivered from the pain and misery of this life, from death's curse and judgment. That means you understand that eternity actually begins Today, Sometimes we struggle with the concept of eternity, don't we? We think, what can that be like when we die and go to heaven and there's no end, no death, no finish line where life is an endless, perpetual existence. It overwhelms our minds and we think to ourselves, I don't don't know, it's too big. It can't be too big though because you're living it today if you believe in Jesus Christ. If you believe in Jesus Christ, then you are headed to a day of living in unbroken fellowship with the Lord where your body is placed in the grave, but your soul immediately goes to your Father in heaven. And one day your body and your soul will be reunited so that you will live in fellowship with all of God's people upon this earth in praise of your King. That reality starts the moment you believe. Your journey to perfect fellowship with God has already begun. And each step along the way, each day that you live is another progression down that path. And that ought to make the Christian life one full of great joy. 
Oh yes, it is one that grieves at sin. It's, it grieves at the brokenness and the pain of what God or what sin has done to this life by its rebellion against God. But it rejoices in the midst of all of that with the thanksgiving of grace in Jesus Christ. It sees what God has done in His Son. And it says, I will celebrate that. I will rejoice in that. I will demonstrate that. I will live by that power. I will put to death the old nature and bring to life the new. This is the walk of the believer that knows the wonder of Christ's death and His burial. Who looks at death in the face, sees its ugliness, and rejoices in the smiling face of Jesus Christ to live for Him. The world around us tries to deal with death in so many ways. Most of them are silly, empty, and foolish. We can look at the grief of death. We can look at the brokenness of death and say this is wrong. This is not the way it was supposed to be and this is our fault. We've done this. But behold our King and see what He's done and rejoice in His grace. For great is the goodness of God to all who believe in His Son. Let's praise Him for that in prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, what a wonder it is to know that in Jesus Christ our death is not death, but entrance into eternal life. Indeed, that eternal life has begun now, not in our bodies, but in our souls, so that we may walk forever with You. Lord, we pray, help us to live each day that way. Help each day of our lives be lived in the light of death's defeat. May we not fear. May we not be anxious for anything. May we trust that You will provide, especially in those moments of great darkness and difficulty, the grace that we need so that we might bear up under the brokenness of this life in a way that witnesses to the world of our love for You. But until then, Lord, give us strength each day to live distinctive, set-apart, holy lives. Not lives like the world lives, but lives like those who have been freed from the chains of sin. In Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.